I'm, I'm excited about starting a new series. I felt the Holy Spirit put this on my heart for a little while, and I said, nah, put it back up, nah, you know, then finally said, all right, okay. And interestingly, the, the coincidence, if you would, of the timing, that here we are going to study the tabernacle, the festivals, and the priesthood, how these three major works of God of the Old Testament have to cohere and function as one and are all completed in one person. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so we want to do this because it is imperative that we have a much greater, deeper, broader understanding of the Old Testament. Why? Why? Because it's God's Word. Do I need to say anything else? It is God's Word, and there is a purpose in it. And so this morning we start this, and there are going to be some sessions, I will tell you this up front, that are going to be much more information, this, 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 and this, and you're going to think, man, why do we have to have this, this, and this was here, and this was there? Why? Because it is God's Word. It means something. And then as we move along, we'll get into the areas that begin to speak about what does all this mean? What does it have to do with us? But we have to build first a foundation. So be prepared for that. And secondly, be encouraging others to come. Last week we sang a song where the Lord was enthroned over the cherubim. What in the world does that mean? You know, I mean, we don't know what that means. We move along and it doesn't mean anything to so many people. And when we go through this, we're going to see in the New Testament and in so many of the songs that we sing on Sunday morning, we're going to see references. We're going to be able to identify, oh, this is what God is speaking about. And it just enlarges our capacity to understand and it enlarges our heart to receive from God of who he is and what he's done. Amen. Father, thank you so much. <clears throat> Most astounding God you are. Father, teach us, minister to us, reveal to us according to your will, according to your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, this morning, let's talk about the tabernacle. You'll see there is, uh, I, don't, I suppose we call that a picture. Is that what that's called? I, I can't get all the different terms today in my mind that are floating around. But this, this is one picture of what the tabernacle in the wilderness would have looked like. You're going to see when you look these things up, a few different looks that may have been this way, whatever. No one knows exactly whether it was this way or had a little point on or whatever. That's not important. What's important for us is to get a view of what the Israelites were being commanded to do and what the result of that looked like for the Israelites in the wilderness. And you remember the tabernacle, of course, was finally um, uh, put to an end or, or ceased to exist because of the temple. But this is their place the place of God's dwelling, the place of the people's worship, etc. This is what it would have looked like. This morning we begin a new series, and I'm entitling this, maybe there's better titles, Communion with God in the Old Testament. Because communion with God in the Old Testament is still communion with God in the New Testament. Communion with God in the Old Testament and the way it was done and what had to be done and how all the functions is the very same as in the New 
And I think we'll begin to see this. Now, hopefully this series is going to give us a better understanding and a better appreciation of God's grace that calls us to be God's children and thereby allowing us and giving us the right and the ability to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, you can't put your head back against the wall like that. The lights are going to go off and on, so let Him know that. Kind of put your head, there it is. Yeah, thank you. All right. (laughs) So we're going to go into the Old Testament. Why? Because in the Old Testament is the seed of everything that blossoms in the new. There is not a thing in the New Testament. May I repeat that? There is not a thing in the New Testament which is not also in the Old Testament. Do we get that? I think we said that enough that we should always remember that. There's nothing in the new that is new as far as its existence. It's new in its fruition. It's new in its culmination. It's new in its totality, but it's not new in, wow, this is nowhere else in the Bible. Everything of the new is in the Old Testament in seed, in type form, in practices, which comes to fruition in the New Testament. So what was God after in the tabernacle? Why a tabernacle? The tabernacle was God's means of foreshadowing and anticipating the restoration of his divine purpose in his people. Remember God's divine purpose for his people in Genesis 1, 26 and 28? That he would have a people who would be his image bearers, who would in themselves carry to the world through their relationships, through their obedience to God, through their taking dominion, through all of this that God gives them to do, that they would carry into the world the very revelation and image of this great creator God. This is still the mandate that is upon every one of us this morning. The mandate of God having saved us is this. Let us make the people in the church according to our likeness and after our image. We today are God's image bearers. The world will never see the reality of God. They will never see the reality of the Lord Jesus. They will never see the reality of what salvation is. They will never see the reality of heaven and hell. They will never see this reality to the place that they need to see it except they look at us. We are the living images of who God is and how God is. So remember, the Lord created Adam and Eve to be his first image bearers who were going to have children, and that whole people who would come from Adam and Eve would be the image bearers of God upon the earth. And they would be taking over dominion over the earth. And this people, God's people, the people whom God has created to be his image, would be ruling as his agents upon the earth. We would be taking dominion over the earth. And this would be possible only as God and man would enjoy communion together as man kept the mandates of God. Now remember, God is a community being. There is in the being of God three persons. And these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, exist in in an eternal communion, a community, a fellowship. And this is what God is after. 
He is after a people with whom he can have this kind of communion and fellowship. And so we are created to be in his image. But you remember, Adam disobeyed. Remember Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And as a result of Adam's disobedience, what happened? <clears throat> God's desire for communion with his people was still maintained but the way he was going to go about it was going to be changed because of sin coming into the world and so adam and eve were severed from that communion that relationship with god and god began to work immediately to bring man back into that original intention to have communion with him because you see if a person does not have a relationship with god and most don't the problem with not having a relationship with god is that that means that those people are in today and will experience fully a hell of an existence literally they will be condemned forever and so the desire of god is that we come into communion with him to be delivered from the ravages of hell and come into his heaven to experience his forgiveness and his communion so the promise of God was put forth. Remember, God immediately began to move. Remember in Genesis 3, the Lord says, I'm going to send a deliverer, the seed of the woman. There's a seed of the woman coming. And he, speaking to Satan, he is going to, you're going to bruise him on the heel. You're going to inflict a wound on him. But he is going to crush your head, meaning he is going to destroy your authority over God's people. And then you remember in Genesis 3.21, the Lord shows how this will happen. What happens in Genesis 3.21? The Lord saw Adam and Eve, and they were clothed, remember, in what? Fig leaves, banana leaves. He, they were clothed in fig leaves. And so what the Lord does is to strip them of their fig leaves, their man-made coverings, and cover them with what? The skin of an animal. And what does that mean? What happens when you skin an animal? It dies. Blood is shed. And so there it is in Genesis 3.21. <clears throat> God immediately begins to proclaim, this is the means of redemption and re regeneration for my people. Blood of an innocent must be shed. An innocent must die in order for my people to be unclothed of their unrighteousness and be clothed with the righteousness of of my own son that's the statement that begins there and travels all the way through into the new testament and that is basically what the tabernacle and the festivals and the priesthood is all about it is this issue of blood shedding it is this issue of sacrifice that is the very heartbeat of what's going on in the tabernacle so this promise of a coming deliverer is carried forth remember when god called abraham in genesis chapter 12 to become the father of a great nation through you, I'm going to make a great nation. And then remember in Genesis 14, 15, 14, the Lord reappears to Abraham as he did several times through these chapters. And the Lord promised to deliver his people from their bondage. Remember this? You're going to be in bondage for 400 years. He said, but I will bring judgment on the nation. What nation are we talking about? Egypt. And they that they serve <clears throat> and afterward they shall come out with great possession so the lord says i'm going to deliver my people from bondage first of all i'm going to <clears throat> if you would lead them into egypt 
and then I'm going to take them out of Egypt. You see, this is a curious thing, but this is what God does. And so in delivering Abraham's offspring, God was in reality delivering his people from their bondage. He says, I'm going to be the deliverer. I'm going to do among you what someone who is coming will do in fullness. You're going to experience a partial deliverance. In other words, there's still going to be issues and there's still going to be difficulties and there's still going to be all those things that come into play. But there's coming one day who will want someone who will totally and completely and forever deliver my people from their sin and from the bondage of Satan. And so this is God's people. This is why he tells Pharaoh, when we get into the chapters in uh, Sunday morning in chapter uh, what chapter is it? Seven, eight, and nine, I think it is. I should remember. How do you like that? And Moses is speaking to the Pharaoh on the behalf of God. And what does he say? My people, my people, my people. This is God delivering those who belong to him. This is a promise he made to Abraham. This is a promise he made in Genesis. And this is a promise that he continues to keep. So what happens after delivering the people out of Egypt? We begin to see that God moves them out of Egypt into the wilderness and they finally come to the mountains of Sinai and they camp um, around at the base of Mount Horeb. And in chapter 20, you remember, God is going to begin to constitute them as his people through a covenant relationship that is expressed in the giving of the law. And he says, here's the law. Here is who I am. Here is how you are to live. Here is what you are to do. Here is what I have done and will continue to do. And do you agree with this? And everybody, of course, says we agree with that. And the nation begins to move forward. So God begins to deliver his people. Now the Lord was ready to dwell among them in a visible way. In a visible way. So here's what we read in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, verse 8, <clears throat> and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern or the model or the likeness of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it, verse 40, and after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. So what happens? Moses, you remember, is brought into the mountain to be with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses, by the way, goes up into this mountain five different times in all these chapters of Exodus. And this is just one of the times. And when he's up there, God gives him detailed instructions <clears throat> on how to construct a dwelling place upon the earth, a dwelling place for God's presence. And it's called the tabernacle. Now, the Hebrew for tabernacle is mishkan. It just simply means a place of dwelling. It's, all, it's a house. It's a place that you dwell. The tabernacle was God's earthly residence with his people. The visible and active location of his presence, of his power, of his provision, of his protection. And so the tabernacle for the people of Israel was that place where God dwelled visibly. And when the camp of Israel moved from place to place, what the people did, they broke down their tents, 
they packed them up and they moved on when the people broke down their tents and packed them up and moved on they did it according to the instruction of the Lord through Moses and so what happens to the tabernacle the tabernacle if you would is broken down packed up by the Levites and is moved on and then they come to the next location where they're going to stay and the tabernacle is reassembled just like you see here and the people reassemble their tents around the tabernacle and so where the people go God goes in fact where God goes the people go and God is intenting himself with the people as they are intense God also is living in a tent in the wilderness among his people this is what's happening in the wilderness you see, the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, God has chosen to fellowship with his people as he had done, at least in somewhat of a limited way, as he had done in the Garden of Eden. You see, God's purpose in the Garden of Eden has never been forfeited. The way it is being manifested and worked out is somewhat different than what it should have been. But God's purpose in Eden was to tabernacle with his people. And because of sin, that changed the way God was going to do that. And that necessitated the cross. And so in the wilderness, God is showing them, I am doing with you here what I intended to do in the garden and what I will do in fullness in the coming of this great deliverer, whom Moses himself is a picture. But there is coming a deliverer one day who will cause me to be able to tabernacle in my people completely and fully. So you see, the tabernacle was not only God's earthly residence, it was also his means of having fellowship with his people through the sacrificial system. The tabernacle was the place of God's dwelling, but that dwelling was the result first of a sacrificial system. First, blood had to be shed. First, a sacrifice had to be accepted and then God dwelt with his people so there was that sacrificial system and the fellowshipping of God that go together in the Old Testament and as we'll see and as we already know as believers who know the Word of God this is also true for us today now what is the significance of the tabernacle in 1 Corinthians 10 11 you remember this the Apostle tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction you remember that Everything in the Old Testament is there for our instruction so that we can learn, so that we can hopefully by reading and understanding not do the things that we ought not to do, looking at what those people did and realizing if I go <coughs> down that path, what's going to happen to me is what happened to them. Their relationship with God broke down because of this, therefore I don't want to do that, I want to live more wisely. But typically, we kind of don't do that. Paul understood the meaning of the tabernacle <clears throat> and the accompanying festivals. He understood what this was all about. Obviously, because he was raised as a Jew, he was raised <clears throat> as a Pharisee, this man knew it all. He understood that these were God's way of revealing his plan of saving his people from their sin through the person and the sacrificial death of Jesus. So when Paul, and you'll see this as we go through this and as you go back and read the letters of Paul and as you read the letters of the other apostles you're going to begin to pick up these terms what does Peter say we are a living what living stones a a holy house a dwelling Paul says don't you know that your temple is I mean your body is what 
the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're going to begin to see these terms. And when we see them, Paul is remembering this, this Old Testament prefiguring, this Old Testament revelation, this Old Testament preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And hopefully what it does is tie our minds, oh, sorry, ties the Old and New Testaments together in our minds, causing us to see the Bible as one completed book rather than two or three different things. Therefore, the tabernacle was the earthly model of God's way of salvation. How does God save? Well, we see it in the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so you see, the tabernacle in the wilderness looked forward to the day. It looked forward. It predicted. It preached about the day when God would permanently reside with man in the incarnation. Now, you remember, do you remember, do you know what the word incarnation means? The word incarnation means to be enfleshed. Carnal means flesh. And so the word incarnation means that the Son of God took on a body. That's what the word incarnation means. So when you hear that, wow, what does that mean? It means that the Son of God took on a body. There is the earthly incarnation, the first work of the incarnation in delivering us from our sin, and Jesus now eternally, the Son of God eternally dwells in a human body in the heavens, and so there is a heavenly eternal incarnation. There is the earthly incarnational ministry, and there's a continuing ministry forever. Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us, as we see in Hebrews 7. So this is where the Gospel of John begins. Remember the Gospel of John? Remember the first several verses? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John begins his gospel by proclaiming the Trinity, by proclaiming there's something new going on. All of a sudden, what you have seen in the Old Testament, John is saying, I am declaring to you to be visibly worked out in its fullness today in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so John is careful and deliberate to identify the Word as none other than who? It is the divine person who has always been with God and who has been God. The Word was with God and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Now go down to verse 14, John 1, 14. Now we see John 1, 14, and what we do typically... We read that, it means something, and we move along pretty quickly. Look at John 1, 14. And what does it say? And the Word became flesh, incarnation. The Word became fleshed. Okay, fine. The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt. The word dwelt there is the word for tabernacle, for dwelling, for residence. The Word became tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory that glory as of the who only begotten son what of the father what full of grace 
and truth. Look at verse 14. Now, typically when we read verse 14, we see that and we move along. But verse 14, in verse 14, John has just summarized everything that we're going to talk about. You see, verse 14 is one of those monumental verses that Christians often miss as to its hugeness and its greatness. You see, in John 14, John has gathered up all the practices of the sacrificial system that were associated with the tabernacle. In John 1.14, John has gathered up the expression of God's Shekinah in the tabernacle. Remember, God's manifested presence and glory in the tabernacle. In John 1.14, John has gathered up all the practices of the priesthood. He's gathered up all the activities of the seven festivals. He has taken all of this together and has declared that all of that has been completed and fulfilled in one person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we read John 1:14, we should not just read it, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we move along. But when we read that and see that the Word became flesh, what does that mean? God became flesh. God the Son became flesh. And he took upon himself and did in his body everything that the tabernacle stood for and everything that the God did and accomplished through the tabernacle, through the festivals, through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system. In this one man is gathered all of this great work of God. And you see, when we begin to see the Old Testament that way, it's like, oh, Oh, wow, look at what John has just said. When he says this, Jewish people who understood as believers the Old Testament, when he said this, this is like, <gasps> rocks their boat. Because if you would, he has taken everything from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Malachi, and he has gathered up all of God's great work of the Old Testament and has said, all of this, all of it, is now contained in this one man who is called Jesus. Who in this one man who walks among us and speaks among us <clears throat> and ministers among us and who will die for us. And so why bother to study this? Because if we don't see this, what that does is not allow us to see the greatness and the grandeur of this man. It doesn't allow us to see the astounding, magnificent work of this God on our behalf. And so can you imagine being a Jew in those days and reading this, knowing all of what, and they're going to know a lot better than we know. We're not going to go in nearly the detail that these people know it. And they experienced it. And then John says, all of that is in him. This is mind-blowing. Do, do you get this? I want, this to, I want you to feel this. 
that God is saying, I've gathered it all together. I've put it in this man. And as Colossians says, Christ is the substance or the fulfillment of all of it. In one man, several thousand years and millions of sacrifices and hundreds and hundreds of priests, all of that is finalized and completed in one man, in one sacrifice, as one priest. Now that should be astounding to us. That is astounding, as far as I'm concerned. And so read the Old Testament, get to know it. So when you look at the new, it's like, oh, look what that says. Oh, wow, wow. And we begin to be overawed with the enormity, the enormity of this Word of God, of this revelation. And it begins to become such a preciousness to us that it draws us in, draws us in by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> See, this is what Jesus was talking about in John 14, 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home. We will come and tabernacle in this person who loves me. In the person and work of Jesus, all the types of the Old Testament, Old Tabernacle, of the Old Testament tabernacle were fulfilled as to its structure, its functions, and his furnishings. Everything was fulfilled in one man. So let's look at some of the New Testament scriptures that talk about the relationship of the tabernacle to Christ and to the church. Let me just read some of these scriptures to you. John 2, 14. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Remember, the temple came after the tabernacle but was still the dwelling place of God with the sheep and oxen he drove them all out <clears throat> and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables this man is furiously going through the courtyard of the temple this is not just a man who is saying this man is loud and he is in the face of these people and he is turning things over and he is slashing that whip back and forth this is the sweetie pie that we call Jesus let me tell you, this is the fury of the holiness of God in the face of desecrating his presence and making it to be that which it shouldn't be. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or trade, a worldly place, bringing in the world's activities into the house of God. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house hath consumed me. Why was Jesus so animated? Why? What drove him? You see, the temple tabernacle was more than just another religious place. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us to, for doing these things? You know, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Jesus said to them, destroy, th look at me, destroy this temple. What temple? And in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, you're not even 46 years old. To build, you know, the, you, don't you know it took 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And they said, you must be crazy. You're a nut. But you see, he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Second, the foreshadowing of the tabernacle is God is with us, Emmanuel, becomes a reality after Pentecost. It becomes a reality. What Jesus did as the tabernacle of God on earth, he expands now after Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, into that reality becoming the reality of his people, dwelling in him, he being the tabernacle of God. Remember on the day of Pentecost. And the church became the body of Christ. It became the tabernacle of God upon the earth. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you are God's tabernacle, his temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Everything that the temple or the tabernacle represented is now being fulfilled in us, his people. God's great purpose of Genesis is now being fulfilled in us and will be brought to total fruition and culmination at the return of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Remember, that was in Exodus chapter 3. So we are the fulfillment. Everything that we're going to study about the tabernacle is going to find its fulfillment in what Jesus did and who he was as the high priest. And now we have been incorporated into that fulfillment. Listen to what 1 Peter says. You're familiar with this. You yourselves, like living stones, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual tabernacle, a spiritual temple, to be a holy priesthood. We're going to study the priesthood, and we're going to find that we are a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is talking about what happened in the tabernacle is now being fulfilled in us. To the extent that we understand the tabernacle, the festivals, and the sacrifices, we will better able understand and visualize, if you would, and experience what the Apostle Peter is saying in this one verse. And it's hidden from most of us because we haven't studied sufficiently what is in the Old Testament. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I mean, where in the world does that come from? Where is Peter getting this stuff? He's getting it out of Exodus. He is merely quoting what God's intention is in Exodus, which is God's intention to his people as he began it in Genesis 1.26, actually Genesis 1.1, and states it in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man according to our likeness and um, in our image according to our likeness. That's what's happening here. There's nothing that has changed. It is an ongoing, persistent purpose of God to achieve his original design that I may proclaim that we may proclaim you may proclaim what the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people you see you were scattered you weren't of God you had no dwelling place but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy and finally Ephesians 2 19 and following so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house, the tabernacle, the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So rather than the tabernacle being built on sockets of silver as the foundation, we now are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ through the apostles and the prophets who have proclaimed the word of God, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole structure of the tabernacle is joined together with rods of silver and are anchored together and it encapsulated with, I mean, it is incredible. Just as this was joined together and all these boards put together and it created a house, if you would, we are also now joined together in the same way into Christ spiritually by the Holy Spirit. That spoke of the existence of the church and of the gathering of all of this, if you would, material to become one house. God has gathered all of us as his, if you would, material as his living stones to be built into one house. How? Through the sacrificial death of this great high priest, which is accepted before God and which is now manifested as accepted on the day of Pentecost in the construction of the church. In him you also are being knit together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. So hopefully we begin to see the significance of what we're talking about. Now in the next several weeks, we're going to go through the details of the outlay, layout and the furniture and look at some pictures and it's this big and it's that wide and it's that tall and all of that. Some of that material may seem dry to you. There's not going to be any, wow, look at that, it's 20 cubits wide. Oh, we're not going to get that like that. But we have to go through the basics. How many of you have ever had a house built for him? You know, any of you ever done any building or construction? So what do you get? You get the boring stuff first of the plans. And they get the lumber and they get the concrete. And it's a, oh, this and that and the other. Thing. <laughs> but it's going somewhere. So once it's finished, you can move into your new home. So let's go through, if you would, it's not boring, but some are going to think, well, this is not, you're not on it. No, we need to see this. Why? Because we need to see the intricate, detailed revelation and work of God's grace, not only in building that tabernacle, but what? In building us. Amen. So come back next week. Thank you so much. <clears throat> <clears throat>